Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each episode we bring you a brand new interview with one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on Google Play Music, iTunes, Stitcher, or on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash the director's cut. And if you're enjoying the director's cut, please take a moment to like, share, or comment. We love hearing your feedback. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Todd Haynes' new film, Wonderstruck. Based on Brian Selznick's critically acclaimed novel, the film tells the dual stories of Ben and Rose, two children living 50 years apart who both feel something missing from their lives. For Rose, living in 1927, it's a mysterious actress whose life she chronicles in a scrapbook, while for Ben, living in 1977, it's the father he has never known. As each sets out on their separate quests, their stories unfold with mesmerizing symmetry. In addition to Wonderstruck, Mr. Haynes' work includes the feature films Poison, Safe, Velvet Goldmine, Far From Heaven, I'm Not There, and Carol, an episode of the television series Enlightened, and the entirety of the miniseries Mildred Pierce. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Haynes spoke with director Dan Gilroy about filming Wonderstruck. During their conversation, Mr. Haynes discusses what interests him about creating period films, how he mixed the different visual styles needed for the dual stories within the film, and what in the material resonated with him and made him take on the project. Thank you all for coming. What a great film. What a beautiful, powerful, brave film that is. I really say I, you, I, I enjoyed it tremendously. I should set this up by saying I've never met Todd before. I'm an enormous fan of his work, and I was honored when I got the phone call to say you wanted me to moderate this Q&A. So I'm excited to be here, and I'm excited to talk about the film, and just to talk about your career in general, because I, like you, I, I know you through your work, and, and you've influenced my work, and there's just so many things I want to ask you about, and we have limited time. So we're at the DJ as a director. This film has more styles and more sections and more cinematic sort of like aesthetic than almost any film that I can think of. I mean, it's period in places, it's black and white, it's color. Tell me how you kept track. I mean, just as somebody, who, the, the logistics, how did you keep track? Because I'm sure you're picking film stocks and different aspect ratios and, and, and how, what was the process for these sections and how did you and Ed keep well, the it all film, together? The film really presented itself with this beautifully sort of, this, this reductive sort of concept that seems compl complicated as when you describe it, but it also had a clarity to it because it was just about paralleling two journeys, 50 years apart by two kids who've lost their hearing. And I think, I'd never really done a mystery genre before. I've never really done a film for younger audiences before. And both of those things presented a kind of parameter with which to still engage with period, filmmaking and a look back at two, you know, contrasting periods in, in New York history um, and an enticement for any director, I think. Right. I mean, it's just like a cabinet of enticements for directors and challenges, certainly. But that structure was so interesting because the, the mystery of why these two stories share one film gets restated every time you cut from one story to the other. And of course, it's a film about two deaf kids 
So it's a film that doesn't rely on the spoken word. Talk about how it gets restated every time you cut. Well, because you're wondering why. Why are right. these two films sharing, two stories sharing one film? Right. There's got to be a reason. And the film you know is going to answer these questions that both kids are seeking, and that's the real question. Why are there parallel actions happening? Why are they both deaths? Why are we, why are we on this double journey? And so that's the mystery. And so the mystery keeps getting rephrased every time you cut. But it comes down to the simplicity of, it's an editorial adventure, ultimately. Right. Uh, but I love that the editorial adventure keeps kind of stoking the, the stakes of the mystery as it goes along. I felt that. I don't know if you felt that, but when I was watching it, it does, it, it does the mystery has an engine, there's an engine of the film. And it, there's a, a very powerful point in the film where you just start to realize the connection is going to be told to you and it's going right. to make sense and you're going to, things are going to start to fall into place in this very powerful way. So it's, it's an interesting film for you on that story because it is a mystery of sorts. Yeah. There is something and, that, that's being uncovered. That provides a real structure to something that might seem completely, you know, based on a kind of uh, cinematic double vision. But it's really poised and it's structured and the two stories keep reiterating each other and themes like the diorama in the natural museum museum of natural history that that the kids cross their paths cross in 50 years apart you know becomes this little sort of container of information right. it's this it's this story that's haunted the little boy ben his whole life he doesn't realize it's actually a memory from his past and that it's the key to the answer of the, the central question that he's asking, right. which is, where do I come from and who's my father? Would you say, I look at your films, I think structure is important to you as a, as a filmmaker and as a creator. Uh, uh, poison with its three different parts, or would you say structure is something that you look for or, or try to, or, do you organize ideas into structure? I know I do. I know, I know, I look at films as something that, that are, are built in a way. Are you yeah, cer you're absolutely. certainly looking for the freeform, subconscious, aesthetic, and all the things that come in that, but ultimately they're built and they yeah. have a shape to them. Screenplays have a shape, so is structure something that you... Well, it, they absolutely, it really absolutely is important. I think it depends on the film, depends on the, what, the sort of, what the sort of thematics ideas are. I've made extremely linear, controlled films, like my film Safe, my second feature film with Julianne Moore, and Far From Heaven as well, which is very sort of classical in its structure. And then I've made these very sort of hybrid films that are like intercutting different periods and, and references to historical events like I'm Not There, the Dylan film, and Poison, my first feature film. Um, and then films that are sort of like maybe almost more like Wonderstruck, that are like memory pieces within memory pieces like Velvet Goldmine, that are little sort of travels through history where something triggers a memory. And there are moments in Wonderstruck, it almost feels like each kid is dreaming the other's story. Um, and there's a way in which this sort of toggle back and forth is like some psychic, you know, kind of trigger. So many of your films, if not all your work, has a period have, have period elements to them. If they're not entirely period, yeah. Does almost is, everyone? So, uh, can you can you conceive of yourself working in a contemporaneous uh, film? Is it is what is it about a period film? And I've heard you talk in interviews about the the role of the outsider and and how an outside perspective can give can give great you know meaning in a way that 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 you don't find with somebody actually within a story. So, right. a period film could be looked at as something. As, we as, as the creator, to, you are outside looking. So, yeah. so what is the role of period to you as a filmmaker, just as a concept? I, th I mean, aside from the fact that it asks of the, our craft incredible learning right. and a kind of like luscious, you know, a 
application to research and to history and to looking back at different periods of film of which I'm always learning something from. I think it's that film is always a frame that somebody's holding up. But a naturalistic setting and a contemporary setting, or because it's such a there's so much verisimilitude in movies, they're so realistic. It's the medium that that you know captures life in the in the most realistic fashion. We like to pretend that frame isn't there and that we're just entering something, you know, um, autonomously, invisibly. But I like to sort of remember that there's a frame being held up because there's always a point of view in movies, whether it's contemporary or period. We're being asked to look at this and not this. There's decisions being made at every turn. And so I think when you hold up a frame for, for a different time period, it sort of asks you about your relationship now to that period and what's relevant and why are we telling the story now. It's really as much about it today, looking back at today, but asking the viewer to kind of consider that actively right. and not passively. That's so interesting. That's so interesting. So, so how a film lands today is relevant. So how do you think Wonderstruck today, how, how, how are we looking at these two periods from today's, what is it about today's lens? I guess one thing that I thought was so special about the material, this is a film I didn't write and develop myself, unlike a lot of my other films, is that it's, you know, it's, it's an anti-digital movie. It's a film <laughs> about kids who make things with their hands and whose, whose creative practices, whose interests in natural history museums and in making little buildings are not just hobbies, but they're things that get them through life right. and help them find the answers to their questions about who they are. And I just thought, what a beautiful sort of offering to, to contemporary kids. You know, I was a kid who was always making things with my hands, had marker, right. you know, smudges all over my fingers and glue stains and all that stuff. And, and movies made me want to make things. Like, I would see films when I was a kid, and they'd kind of derange me. They kind of made me nuts right. and make me want to react creatively. My first film was Mary Poppins. For a lot of people, that was our first film of my generation. And it was a movie that I responded to with a sort of creative obsession, right. drawing pictures of Mary Poppins, performing the songs, and you know, right. the way we would remember every frame of a film before there was you know, DVDs and CDs and videos and stuff to replay So Mary them. Poppins, what was it about, kids film, Mary Poppins, what was it about Mary Poppins, I, I, I'll, I'll now tell you my favorite film what is was Wizard your, of Oz. Well yeah. God. Wizard of Oz I mean, come on. Is, is to me the perfect film, Absolutely. I very much live in my subconscious, I think that's the power of the most powerful Completely. place, and and it, it's scary, and and it's it's beautiful yeah. and and her singing will crush your heart. So so I what was it about Mary Poppins for you that that as a as a story I, or film? in a way like I can watch Wizard of Oz at any moment now. I'm not sure I have the same relationship to Mary Poppins in as an adult. Uh, I, although I think still, kids still respond to it. I think it was that it was the very first movie I saw. I think it was the experience of seeing a movie on a big screen with. And it being a fantastic Disney film that combines animation, and, and I, I'm sure there was that sort of maternal theme of that very specific female central character that registered to me as a, you know, um, in some way. But different movies after that would do the same thing. I like would just what, get what, what some other few. My few next films. one was um, uh, Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet in 1960. Another children's film. Another kids film. No, but it was a film. It was very interesting. In 1968, all my friends, I was seven, all my friends had birthday parties and we all went to see Oliver, which is right. a stunning musical. Gorgeous, oh, yeah. gorgeous production. 
And, but then many of us made a little rite of passage that year. I grew up in LA, <clears throat> and so movies were all around all of us. And, uh, and some, of the, some of our parents started take us, taking us to Romeo and Juliet. And Romeo and Juliet had a real connection to youth culture of the 1960s. And you know the hippies and young teenagers fell in love with that movie with these beautiful young actors playing Romeo and Juliet in the ages that Romeo and Juliet really were. It's a gorgeous film. And that score by Nina Roto is, Nina Roto is so extraordinary. But I got obsessed with Romeo and Juliet. I think it was very erotic to me. It was definitely, I think it was movies that were a little beyond me, beyond my reach. I think you want to show kids things that are just a little bit beyond their comprehension, and it makes them, you know, some kids, I guess, get a little nuts and want to want to grow and understand it. Another film that I got really into shortly thereafter, around the age of the kids in, in Wonderstruck, was The Miracle Worker. Um, and I think kids are really interested in Helen Keller and the idea of sign language and ways of communicating beyond normal means and having to figure out what would I do in that situation, you know? And also that it's about it's about language. That do you think there was any connection language. between Wonderstruck oh, and, and the, the totally. deaf? So that was something that you were interested uh, a way of seeing a way of not experiencing the world, a sensory loss. Yeah. That was something so so when you read the yeah. material, read their book, this was something that resonated with you going back completely. I mean, I think don't you think kids always are drawn to, I mean, maybe it's kids in secure, comfortable suburban lives can, can dream of being orphans right. and fantasize what it's like to be set loose into the world, into the, into the city, and having to fend for themselves, or losing a sense, and having to figure out how you communicate and what you do. But I definitely had those had those fantasies. Like it's a, lot a way of, of confronting could, fears in a way, right? Yeah. It's a way of like the, the nightmares that you think of, how do I, how do, how do I make sense of it with a story? It's about, and it's exactly, I think it's about telling stories. Right. And it's about realizing that stories, you know, help us figure out who we are. And when there's a missing part of our own narrative, our own lives, we tell a story to tell us who we are. This is true for the history of minority cultures, I think, who aren't a part of dominant history and have to kind of write their own history and supplement what's been written about African-American lives and gay lives and the lives of women. And you know, We have to do it ourselves. And, and yet it's another form of fiction. It's still an act of creation in a way to tell your own story. But I think it's an empowering one. And that's what really these kids are in search of, their own stories. Right. And the film, I just feel like the film, it was all from the concept Brian Selznick's script and idea. It feels handmade. It feels like the things the kids are actually stitching together themselves, the feeling of the film. And it goes back to silent cinema, which is hardly a naive period in film history. It's an incredibly sophisticated one, but we, but we realize it's, it's operating without sound. And so all of the visual components and rhythmic components of cinema are playing the lead role in how it, how it works. I want to talk about the film specifically. A couple things. How did you do the shot? There's so many beautiful shots in the film. I would be difficult to single out, but there's one that there's one that stood out in particular. The the nighttime black and white shot moving through Times Square in the car, or the train with the lights behind it. How did you? What was how, what was the manufacture the, of that shot? With the little girl in black and white. Yeah, what, that what, was a you, so dreamy and it's amazing. Dream, I saw you know in our research we found photographs of Times Square from the late 20s that looked like that, and, I, and they were probably filtered right. 
they were probably like art photography from the period, but it inspired this idea that sort of as Rose sort of starts to find the New York that she's going to make her home, that she's going to make her life, that it starts to resemble the things that she made herself and the models in her imagination. So there is a lyricism throughout a lot of her story, but it starts to increase toward the end of it. And then finally the very end, when she looks out the window and sees a, sky, a sort of stylized skyline of Manhattan, we dissolve to the panorama, a little prelap of what's to come in the panorama scene later on. Todd's answered on a thematic level. I actually want to steal that shot, <laughs> and I want to find well, out how it, he did it. We did it in miniatures. I mean, okay. my whole, uh, the whole concept of how to do the Rose story, which wasn't Those in the miniature. script. Those are all miniature little buildings. They're all, they're all miniatures. It was sort of a way of going, you know, in the script I think it was straight, described as straight flashback scenes when Ben finally reads the story that he's been awaiting his whole, the whole film about where he came from and what Rose's life was. Uh, but we thought, I thought, let's use the diorama, let's use the language that the film has already set up as a way to convey that, because it's, it's something he's imagining. We're thinking, oh, it's through a kid's imagination, things that matter to him. And uh, like even there, and there are things that are in his bedroom at the beginning of the movie. The red truck on his nightstand is the red truck that the father drives up the snowy hill to meet the mother, the Michelle Williams character. In. Uh, but yeah, those were all miniatures. It was almost a way of combining the diorama, a three-dimensional reenactment of of space, a spatial trick, you know, putting an animal in its habitat in a diorama with the miniature of the panorama, which is a miniature three-dimensional space as well. And it was sort of fusing those two very key locations and institutions that the movie embraces. The film for me just goes into outer space in the most beautiful way when it gets to the stop motion part. <laughs> I love that you and say outer space because it is a trippy, I love that yeah, we were thinking it was a trippy movie. It self-actualizes when it becomes the stop motion because suddenly objects become important. The, the, the characters have become objects that have been created. Right. So everything is self-referring back to things that have been later. So tell me, you decide to do stop motion, which is just an insanely difficult, well, hard, time-consuming thing. They're actually not even stop motion. They're, they're like puppets. With with because okay. um, they don't move. That's true. They don't move. They don't They're sort move. Of static, they, right? It's like the diorama, which are tableau moments that find a an elevated moment to describe the species leaping off a rock or whatever right. it is. And this, it was just the sort of privileged moment in the memory, the way Ben would picture that moment in Rose's backstory, and we just added a little movement to it. But all of a sudden, I realized, oh my god, this is my my movie superstar with dolls that yeah. I started out with. When did you decide? At what point did you decide to do that that way of telling the the you know the voiceover? When at what point in the process? We, did you it start? was early on, and it was uh, came out of the incredibly stimulative and and sort of foundational conversations I had with Mark Friedberg, the production designer on Wonderstruck. This is sort of an homage to the art of production design in a way. This movie, you know, it's like not just the diorama, which is sort of a sort of miniaturization of what the production designer does. But, you know, this this double period thing where you're constantly thinking about how things change, how backgrounds change over time and what the dressing does and, and did it change? What are the things that continue through time, that survive time? Um, so Mark and I started to talk about all of the strategies of how we're going to pull this thing off. And we thought we might farm out the animations 
stuff, the miniature stuff to a company in Portland, Oregon, where I live, who do a lot of 3D claymation, great, great stuff out of Portland. But then we thought, God, all the team, his amazingly talented production team, production design team, are all here in New York making the models and planning the sets. And we thought, no, let's have it come directly out of their hands. And it did, and so we used the people there and kept it local. And then the sets we were dressing started to inform the miniatures and vice versa. So it felt like it was a more holistic you know, mirror of the two, of the two realms. <clears throat> we were talking before we came out, because we just met, and I was saying, what an interesting career trajectory Todd's had, in the sense that, that you're, you're in college, and you make a film, <clears throat> I guess for a class or a thesis or whatever, and it's the Karen Carpenter. The first film was the Karen Carpenter story told with Barbie dolls, and it just breaks through all the noise of everything, and you become you get on anybody's radar, and now you are starting to make films. So back up from it. Had you not made Karen Carpenter, had it not been a success, what were you imagining? What was what? what how were you imagining things developing for you as a filmmaker? Did you see yourself as an experimental filmmaker, or how did you see yourself if, if that had never happened? Well, it's interesting. We were talking about how Dan came from New York, moved to L.A. Yeah. I came from L.A., moved to the East Coast, stayed in the East Coast after college in, in, in the East Coast. And we moved to New York after college in, 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 at Brown. And, uh, and, and that people need to go somewhere. You need to leave your known environments to kind of fig find, figure things out. But um, I... I did think of myself as an experimental filmmaker. I had great teachers at col in college or p people around me who were making films that were challenging form and content and style, and, and they were teaching. And that's how they were able to make their films completely freely without any intervention. And they didn't have the burden of thinking about themselves as commercial filmmakers or, or narrative filmmakers. And, and yet, this was an interesting moment where Experimental film was moving away from the formalist, purely like just stamp brackage, just right. images on the screen, and starting to incorporate genre and references to narrative in it. What would and be then, some examples in your mind of films at that well, period? Well, Sally right? Potter made a film uh, early on called Thriller, and it was a film we saw in like a feminist film class at Brown or something. And, but it was like using the thriller in the context of feminist film theory. I, don't, I haven't seen that film in many, many years, so I don't remember it that well. But that was one example. At the same time, David Lynch was making Blue Velvet. And so all of a sudden, there was a sense of the experimental language in, infusing, into, in, influencing narrative filmmaking, feature filmmaking, commercial filmmaking. And so I felt like there was this interesting cross-pollination going on, where one culture was informing the other, which is always sort of what you want. You want to see the arts affect popular art, and you know you want to see that. And there are interesting moments historically where that seems to be more true than others. And I felt that at the time. And then Superstar was actually the first film I made when I left college and moved to New York and made an independent film on my own. I had made a film before that about Arthur Rambeau, the poet. Couldn't get it into a film festival. Couldn't get it into a film festival or an experimental film center to show it in New York City. And then I made Superstar, and, and some of the sort of pillars of experimental filmmaking, the Collective for Living Cinema in New York City, were like, we don't know what to make of this movie. It's too ironic. It's playing with narrative. It's playing with the star story genre. We don't know what to make of this thing. It, it, it's a hybrid. 
it doesn't, it's not readable. How did that make you feel? Because that's, as, a, as an artist, that's actually exactly where you want to be. That's what you, you want. You really want to be right there, you but how did you feel at the time? You don't necessarily know it yet, but because I just was like, I just want to get my film shown one place. You know, that's why. When you and, confuse the experts, you know you're doing something right. <laughs> exactly. I think. Yeah, and, and that's, why, that's why many, you know, filmmakers who start out don't get rights to their, the music that they use because right. they don't think about how it could actually live on beyond that moment and getting it shown in one place being their only goal you know and that kind of was my only goal at the time but i i had worked in a, i was a preparator in galleries in new york for money and so i knew how to do a press release so i did a press release for i finally got a place that would show superstar and this underground hole in the wall east village film theater and then i what year was this this was like 87 and then I, so I did a little press release. I sent it to Jay Hoberman, The Village Voice, lead critic of The Village Voice. And I sent it to Barbara Kruger, who was writing, who was an artist who was writing for Art Forum, among others, and said, if you're interested in this film, because it's showing, we'll send you a VHS tape of it. <clears throat> and all of a sudden, they asked for the VHS tape of it. And they wanted to watch my little weird superstar movie, Karen Carpenter's story. And all of a sudden, I heard Hoberman wants to review it. And you know, and it became the, it was the lead film review of the week that it came out that he that he reviewed. I it. remember reading the review. I was in New York at the no. point. No, oh no, I do. I was I worked at Variety during that period in New York. Oh my God, that's crazy. And and but this was a phenomenon. That, I remember well, when it, that came was, out. It became a phenomenon. It, it, I mean, in those days, the Village Voice had that kind of cultural, yeah. you know, seminal influence, and it could create a career, especially one that was just beginning. Yeah. And they just needed a few art houses and, and contemporary art centers in, in the United States to take an interest. And so Superstar had a very brief life before the lawsuits came to me, which I knew were inevitable. And, uh, and it showed around the country, and I toured with my film, and all of a sudden, you know, people were interested in that film. But what, what made me really excited and gave me a kind of direction is I felt like audiences could handle, start, audiences that weren't necessarily experimental film audiences, but other audiences were sophisticated. They were flipping around the channels of their TVs, other cables, cable TVs every night, and seeing fragments of every kind of genre of movie. I knew exactly where they were. We, we all have this ability. And we could read different narratives. And I was like, because Superstar played around with different sort of styles and tones of narrative. And they got it. And they could adjust right into it. And that was promising. And I felt like audiences are really smart. And there's no reason to cater down to them. It's actually like an invitation to ignite that, if possible. And so that was the core. And then AIDS epidemic was, was, was all around us. And that sort of fueled the ideas for my next feature film. But the style of Poison what came directly out of that conviction that audiences had curiosity and sophistication and intelligence, you know, and that should be something to respect. And Such a massively important point. We only have one minute, maybe less at this point. Todd Haynes' guilty pleasure in cinema. What, what, what is a guilty, guilty pleasure? Guilty pleasure on, you're, you're switching around the TV, there's a thousand channels. What film might you drop into and oh, suddenly God. enjoy in a, in a way that we wouldn't expect? Maybe? Oh, there's so many. I like, I, it's funny, my boyfriend and I, he, I love that he digs the highbrow and the lowbrow, and I get into the middlebrow. And so maybe that's my guilty pleasure. But then, but you know, I, I like, I mean, this is not a guilty pleasure because it's just a masterpiece, but I just watched broadcast news 
again the other day. Like I could watch that movie every day. It's just so brilliant and so gorgeously conceived, and the character, the comedy is so great. The, the act, you know, it's just the performances are so brilliant, and I still learn from that movie. It's 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 just, but it may not be a kind of movie people associate with my films. Wrap it up just by saying I am so honored to be here with you. There are so few filmmakers who have the talent and the ability to access resources, and they could put them anywhere. They could you could apply yourself to many different areas, but you stay true to a vision. And, I, and I, I don't know you well enough to say it, but I think you have a vision of, of a shared humanity and, and, and a possibility of something better for all of us, at least an acceptance of things. And you, you stick to it and you're consistent. And God bless you for making Thank the you films you so make. Much. It means everything in the Thank world. You. It really it's does. really nice. I really appreciate that. Thanks, you guys, so much for coming. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Thank that you. Was Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. Don't forget. You can check out past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. We have many great Q&As coming up, so stay tuned to hear conversations featuring director Stephen Gyllenhaal on his film So Be It, Reginald Hudlin speaking about Marshall, and Martin Campbell discussing The Foreigner. Also, be sure to subscribe to our podcast to stay up to date on the great discussions we have coming up. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please like, share, and leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.